Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. I say you have to have darks, mediums, and light tones at every layer so that if you stop now and never come back to that painting, it still looks like a painting. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint Podcast, the show that gives you artistic tools you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today, I'm talking with artist Jacqueline Sullivan. In the conversation, you'll discover how to know when it's time to shake up your process, some great advice for layering with acrylic mediums, and ideas for how to get more familiar with your tools, plus a whole lot more. In the extended cut bonus available in the podcast art club, you'll explore compositional formats and how to take your mind off what you're doing and why it's so important. You can find links to the podcast art club and the show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 91. I start the interview by asking Sullivan how she got started in art. I've been interested in art ever since I can remember. I remember being eight years old at my aunt's wedding and going around and asking all the adults to help me draw a lion. And they all said they couldn't draw. And I'm like, but you're an adult. Why can't you draw? So that's like my earliest memory of art. And then I had a really good, he wasn't my high school teacher, he taught in in another high school, but he had two summer programs and we painted and drew every day from eight to 12 in the morning in the summertime. And he's really been the biggest influence in my art life. And really, he mentored me and encouraged me and took me to some college classes and was just amazing. How did you find abstract painting specifically? Hasselhoff, the guy I was telling you about, his father Hasselhoff, he was a priest. That was his interest primarily was abstract painting. So he encouraged us to do abstraction. So as we were drawing the landscapes or painting the landscapes, he really didn't like realism. So he wanted something, he wanted our response to the landscape. And so that drew my interest into abstract. And I really haven't, I've done realism and I did a lot of trees for a while and barns, but it's never held my interest like the abstract has. Well, in... In representational painting, like you're working towards something specific, like a field or an apple, there's that thing you're kind of working toward. But in the case of abstraction, you're not necessarily. So were there any skills that you feel like you had to build for abstraction that were different than maybe if you had been working toward representational? I think use of paint and brushes and energy of the stroke all became more important than and the realism that I knew then. The realism that I know now or would attempt to do now, I understand that that's just as important. What has really taught us was how to see. I was painting a tree and I was painting all the leaves on it. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm painting the leaves. And he said, but you can't see them. I was like, yes, I can. He said, no, you can't. He said, you see different shades of green, but you don't see the leaves. How did you move into pure abstraction? Or I guess I'm making some assumptions there. Do you think of your work now as pure abstraction? I do. And it was just through really finding myself through painting. I do still do some abstraction of landscapes, but 
I had to go inward for a while. And that going inward and still painting taught me to paint from the inside out as opposed from the outside in. And that's kind of what I described the difference between painting reality and painting intuitively is I paint from the inside out most of the time. And if you're abstracting something, you're really still painting from the outside in. Well, then for you, what skills did you feel like you had to build to be able to do the inside to outside? Well, first of all, I had to be willing to be that open to myself. Like, we're not always true to ourselves and true to what happens on the inside. So I had to build the skill and get used to being open. And I did that through studying of Zen and Zen meditation with another mentor of mine, Jenny Hunter Grote, who was a Zen monk. And she really taught us to go inward for creativity. And that was later in life after I'd had my children. So being able to do that and being able to do it in a true way really made a huge difference. We're going to switch gears here just a little. For listeners who don't know your work, you work in abstraction. But what paints do you use for your work? Primarily, I use acrylics and I use golden acrylics because I'm a certified artist with golden. And I do believe that they're the best paints out there. I used to use mostly fluids and I like the translucency of them. So when you build layers, you can kind of see through them. But lately, I've gone into the heavy body just because they stay wet a little longer, it gives me a little bit more maneuverability in the paint. And I've also added a few colors from other brands that I really like. That's what I've been doing lately. I'm still teaching with the fluid acrylics. And I also have taken up oil and cold wax. So I've been working with oil paints. and I've been using Rembrandt oils for that. For your palette, generally how many colors as an artist do you use? And then generally how many colors in a specific painting do you use? Oh, as an artist, I don't know how many I use. <laughs> I have a big one of those carts on wheels that has a big top to it, and it's filled with colors. I'm not much of a color mixer. I'm doing more of that lately, but I never have really mixed my colors. I'm working intuitively, mixing your colors ahead of time is sort of killing the intuition. So I kind of mix on the canvas as I go. So generally, I'll start with just three or four colors. And then I might add to that as I go on. And I've realized in looking at my work that yellow has a big part in my work, that it's really hard to paint without yellow. Most of my paintings are warm colors. I don't know why, but they just are more warmer colors. Even when I start with blue and green, they end up having a lot of yellow in them somewhere. Do you work with any gels, mediums, or paste as part of your process? I do. I like all of them. One of the things I use quite a bit is the super matte medium. I mix that with my paint. It's a little bit hard to find out there, but if I mix it in with my paint, that gives me a flat acrylic that I can write over. And I do a lot of writing, both aesthetic writing and calligraphy and just handwriting in my paintings. My paintings all have words in them somewhere. You don't see them a lot of times. Golden just came out with a new line of flat paints, which is really nice because they, they're self-leveling. So I might switch from the super matte medium over to those. I don't have all the colors yet. I use a lot of light molding paste for building up texture. I really like that and I like stenciling through it and I like building like a fresco background with it. I like fiber paste for kind of the same reason. It's just a little bit different texture. I've used pumice, I guess they call it pumice gel and it comes in fine and coarse. And I use more of the coarse for often in landscapes, the abstracted landscapes. And I'll use that to suggest rocky rocks or sand or something like that. 
I'll sometimes use a heavy gel to change a fluid acrylic over to a heavy body acrylic. And I also use heavy gel quite a bit for glue. And in collage, I'll use the soft gels to put down lightweight tissue paper and that kind of thing. Well, then could you walk us through your process? Give us a bird's eye view of your process. Well, it changes depending on what I'm doing. If I'm starting with a textural painting, I'll start like with a soft gel or a fluid medium and tissue paper. And then I'll probably stencil some light molding paste over that and then let all that dry and then go on to painting. And then I might add some Japanese papers or lately I've been making a lot of my own collage papers on tissue paper and collaging those down and then kind of painting over and around and such. So, and I almost always start with yellow build analogously. So yellow to green to blue or yellow to orange to red and that way. If I'm not doing a textural painting, I will start by making big, bold, organic marks with a piece of charcoal. And then I'll gesso over that and it'll smear. And that'll give me sort of a gray and black tonality start on the painting. And then I'll sort of pick, I can kind of pick shapes out of there or places to put other marks. But I like the way I've got that sort of gray underpainting that influences the tonality of the painting over the top of it. Is there anything you feel like you need to have decided before you begin a painting? I usually decide on a color palette before I start, just so I have the tubes handy and I got to have something to paint with to start, but, and the size of the painting and the shape by what I pick up to paint on. And that's about it. I don't really decide on anything else unless it's for a class that has a title or something like that, then I'll gear it towards that. But other than that, no, I try not to have an idea before I start. As you begin to build those first layers, what are your goals? And that might be a mindset, that might be a quality of surface, but what are your goals for those first layers? Goals is maybe too strong of a word. I think mindset might be better. And my mindset is to build some shapes within those layers and some marks. I'll look and say, oh, I think I'd like some orange here and and put an orange mark with the brush or a little orange shape, or I'll blend the orange into the yellow. But it's just instinctive what I feel. And then I generally go diagonally from that area and put like some more orange over there. Because somebody told me there's a Frank Lloyd Wright rule of composition. I don't know if that's true. I've never seen it attributed to him. But whatever you do in one corner, you should do in another. And it does work. And it I believe that you need to work over the whole painting and having that habit of crossing the diagonal keeps me working around the entire painting. If you work on one space and you fall in love with that, then you can always pick that space out in the painting in the end. It has a different energy than the rest of the painting does. Right. So does that, is that true for color as well as other things like texture? Like if you put something somewhere, you make sure that it is somewhere else diagonally? Absolutely. But primarily color and shape. Texture, I try to bury so it's not predominant. So I'm not so concerned about the texture being repeated unless I know I'm going to emphasize it for some reason. But for the most part, I push the texture to the background and just let the color and the tonality carry the painting. And then the texture is like the little surprise that people get when they get up close to it. Are those first layers mostly about color? I think they're more about building composition, but you're building the composition with color. And they're also, I say you have to have darks, mediums, and light tones at every layer so that if you stop now and never come back to that painting, it still looks like a painting. And it keeps me 
and keep students from getting locked into a mid-tone palette, which is really easy to do. Right. So you're really starting all of the things in that first layer. Correct. Wow. And things change as it goes on. But I want that first layer to look like a painting. I had one instructor when I took a workshop that said to me, I I'm, I'm was just putting one painting over the top of the other. So I started stopping at that first layer. And by the end of the day, I had nine paintings. And they were really fresh. <laughs> I've never framed one of them. But I just keep going until I really feel, till it really feels finished. Part of intu- working intuitively is responding. But then also making sure you have everything, like the different values and that the composition is working, even in that first stages. How do you move back and forth between purely intuitive versus consciously making a choice? And then I guess also you've been doing this for a while. So the skill you have is is like very deep level of skill. Has that sort of changed as you've built skill? I always have had the ability to change from that right brain, left brain thing, from the analysis to the creativity. Sister Karita Kent said, don't create and analyze at the same time. It's two different sides of the brain. So when I'm teaching, I tell students, you step back, you make a decision on the next thing you're going to do, and then you go do it, and that'll lead to the next decision. But I say one decision at a time because each, each decision informs the next one. You might say, oh, I'm going to put yellow there. And then I think I might put red up there. But you don't say, then I'm going to put red up there. You think I might, or, you know, I think that might be a good idea. But you have to kind of stop and look, switch sides of the brain, and then just kind of integrate that thought into your motion. It's really hard to describe and it's really hard to teach. But I think part of that comes from my background because I had two primary art teachers. I had Sister Mara. I went to an all-girls academy, and she was my teacher during the year in high school. And then I had Father Hasselhoff in the summer. And Sister Mara was a typical conservative nun, and she taught me calligraphy, and she taught me how to draw, and she taught me a lot of process. And then I had Haz in the summer, who was totally wild, and he just taught me how to fling paint. And in art for Sister Mara, we had to do 100 sketches over the summer. And a couple people took in like some of the flinging of paint and she was not happy at all. And I think switching between process and creative, creative is not the right word, but intuitiveness comes probably from having those two primary teachers at that young of an age. Right. So you really learned how to move back and forth. Right. You know, those first layers, how do you know when you're ready to build the next layer of the painting? The next layer comes when I get stuck. So I I won't know what to do next. And I'll have to stop and evaluate and and put it up and get away from it and then do a little thinking on it and then make the decision. I work really fast and I don't want to stop working fast. And I, I learned to work fast because I've done this all my life and I did it with two challenging children. And I just wasn't starting to work till nine o'clock at night. So I had to be fast if I was going to get any sleep. So the working fast. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'll need to take a break and I'll feel like I don't know what to do next or I don't like what I just did. And then I'll have to step back and think about it a little bit. Sometimes I'll go into cleaning brushes or changing the water or think about adding some other colors or something at that stage. When do you start building texture into your work or does that start from the beginning? And I guess for clarity, 
we're talking about textural painting. If I plan on it being a textural painting, and that's sometimes a decision I'll make in the beginning, maybe somebody's requested a textural painting, or I'm exploring a new texture, or I just feel like molding paste that day or something, I will put the texture down first. And then I might change that texture as I go on. Sometimes when I get really stuck in the middle of a painting, I'll go to texture. Quite often I go to just collage, which was generally tissue or deli paper or wrinkled paper. Sometimes it's images, not very often, old book pages or something like that. Sometimes I'll just start writing and I'll just get out a mark making tool, a pencil or a I've got these oil-based marker things. They're concrete markers, and I'll start drawing with those in there and just really muck it up and just start some a little texture from those marks. So it goes both ways, but I'd say probably a good 80% of the time that I decide this is going to be a textural painting before I start. And textural paintings are very popular with the public, so I show in a couple galleries, and they will request texture painting. So that's what I'll be doing. Because you're bringing up the whole painting at once, how much of what you're doing is putting something in and then doing the work to integrate that thing in? That's kind of the whole definition of painting is putting something in and trying to integrate it. One of the most requested things I get from students is how do you blend paint? Because I start for the most part, well, not in the beginning, I'll start with marks, but then I'll, the paint that goes kind of in between the marks and over the marks is blended paints in the first layers. And then I start building that blending down back in the marks again as I'm building it. So the blending, I'm integrating the colors and the amount of blending that I do will start some shapes, which I might find interesting, but it just seems like I'm always integrating something. You were saying that you can walk away at any time. Is that how you know you could walk away at that point? Because it's all integrated and harmonious? Yes. It might not be as harmonious as it's going to be, or it might have a different type of harmony in the end. But at that point in time, I've got a painting. It may not be my favorite painting ever, but I've got a painting. Because an abstract painting can be so many things, how do you know when you're finished? Well. I have my style of abstract, which I kind of stay within certain types of compositions and yellow. So that just comes out. Then when I think I'm finished, I stand it up on the easel in the studio and I leave it there. And then when I go back two or three days later, I'll say, oh, that's finished. Or I'll say, oh, no, that's not finished. I mean, there's one sitting on the easel right now. There's one on top of the easel and one sitting against the easel. The one on top of the easel on the top space is what I thought was finished. It's very blue with some yellow at the horizon line. But I decided it doesn't have enough tonality. It doesn't have enough depth. It's attractive. It's pretty. It's a pretty painting. But it, there's not enough depth to it for me to feel that it's finished. So I'll go back into that a little bit. It won't take much to build some more depth into it. And then the one that's sitting at the bottom was actually a class demo. And it really feels finished. And it's, it's funny because my class demos often turn out pretty well. And I think it's because I'm really not thinking about what I'm doing then. I'm talking about it, but I'm painting and I'm talking. And so I'm not thinking about what's really going down on that painting. I'm thinking about how I'm going to explain what's going down on that painting. And so it really gets to be, they get to be very intuitive. You mentioned that one of the paintings you're working on right now needs more depth. 
Could you talk about what that means in terms of sort of logistics? The depth, I think, is built with value. At least in my paintings, it's built with value. So if I need more depth, I'll build more value into an area. I call it darkening the darks and lightening the lights, which is the very last thing you should do in your painting. I like dramatic tonality on my paintings, and this one's real soft. So I just really want more darks and lights, but I'll build them in a gradual way. So it feels like you space that you can walk into. I like the abstract paintings to feel like you could go swimming in them, that there's something happening underneath all that paint. And that's what this one doesn't have, is that feeling of you can go swimming. I think one of the reasons for buying abstract art for people should be, and often is, that you see something different every time you walk past it. Where if you walk past a familiar scene that somebody's painted, it's you've already seen it and you know it. For you, how important is it having a repeatable process, even if that process changes a little bit, sort of a general approach for how you approach your work? Well, I feel if I have too much repetition of process, my work will become boring and everybody will pick out that's a Jacqueline Sullivan painting. And while there's some good notes about that, I don't think it's necessarily that great. So if I find that I'm repeating my process a lot, which I repeat at the horizon line way too much, but I can't seem to get away from it. So I feel like if I'm repeating the process and the paintings are all like, like I've got a good series going of those paintings, it's time to change the process a little bit and try to come up with something new. Are there challenges that you see your students facing when they're working to build an abstract painting? The first one is kind of the Ira Glass principle, when your taste is up high and your skill is down low. So especially with visual people, you can see where you want to go and you just can't get there. And the second part is being attached to the outcome. You thought of something you want to paint and it's just not working and you're not willing to let go of what you thought you wanted to let the painting have its say. And you got to let the painting lead the way at a certain point in time. All students generally struggle with that. I have one student who asks me constantly, what do I do next? What do I do next? What do I do next? So in a way it's good because he hasn't like locked his way into what happens next, but in the way I somehow need to teach him to make those decisions on his own, which he is getting now. He's doing a lot more on his own. Right. I imagine that when you're starting to learn to paint abstractly, that it can kind of be overwhelming because there are so many possibilities of what to do next. The beginning abstract artists, like what do they need to learn to do so that they can build maybe more complexity into their work? I think they need to learn patience with themselves and with the painting and trust, trust in yourself that you can finish it. Patience comes in to, if you're playing the piano or learning a sport, you don't make a soccer goal your first time on the soccer field and you don't play a concert the first time you sit down at the piano. It takes practice and they see me do it quickly and they think they ought to be able to do that. For some reason with art, people think that they should just be able to do it. They don't realize that it takes practice like any other skill. And I super encourage people to build a creative practice, to work in sketchbooks, to look at abstract art books, to go to museums, to stimulate that creative binge inside you any way you can. And that will help bring something to the table when you're trying to learn. Trusting in yourself is just 
I say it's a difference between a professional and an amateur artist. The professional artist knows that they're going to get that painting through that ugly stage. And every painting goes through an ugly stage at some point in time. It's very rare to have that not happen. So you just need to trust yourself that you can get it through there. You've done it before. You can do it again. And for very, very rank beginners, just knowing that it's going to go through an ugly stage. And the big question is, but I don't know what to do next. And I always say, well, that's a really good thing. You just try something and see if it works. You don't need to know what to do next. I say it's coming from the point of not knowing. How do you know when a painting is finished? Well, I heard this described recently, and I thought it was a great way to describe it, that you can feel full at the end of any meal, but you go someplace and have this really fantastic meal with really good wines and really good company. And at the end of the evening, you feel really satiated and it feels really nice that you've had this great meal with great people. When you feel that way about your painting, it's done. You work in layers. So is there anything that you think is important for someone to understand who wants to work in layers? Yes, I think it's very important to understand your colors and the transparency of the colors. So one of the things I appreciate about Golden is they can paint each label. So you can see these little black and white lines through it. And however much you can see the lines there is how much you're going to see the paint underneath the layer on your painting. And eventually you get to know that instinctly. Yellow is always transparent. All yellow pigments are transparent. So you need to put a little white in them, just a teeny bit, to make them more opaque if you want to use them on the top of a painting. Or you need to build some white underneath them in the painting. Because otherwise you put it over and you just get a dirty looking yellow. So it's really important to understand the transparency of your colors and what color can go over one another. Lately, I've been having students do color charts where whatever palette we're using, whatever group of colors we're using in the workshop, they will do a chart that mixes one color with every other color. And I just did a week-long class in North Carolina, and they said that they really didn't want to do that when I had them do it. But as the week went on, it got to be the most valuable thing that they had done because they could look and say, I want this color, and they could see exactly how they had mixed it from the chart. How does your transparency change as you build up a painting? Or does it, I guess? It just kind of depends on the color story of the painting. Paintings that are really yellow stay transparent. You always see what's going on underneath them. Paintings done with fluid acrylics, you see more of what's going on underneath. Even though you may not think you're seeing what's going on underneath, you are seeing generally what's going on underneath unless it's a really dark, like raw umber or Payne's gray or are pretty opaque. I think sometimes the fluids build more depth because they have that little bit more transparency to them just by the basis of the viscosity of the paint. They have the same amount of pigment in them that the tube colors have, but it's the difference of the viscosity and how you can see through the thinner medium that the paint is made with. So I think your fluid sometimes gives you more depth just because you're seeing stuff that you're not realizing you're even seeing. But it sounds like you decide how much transparency is based on the way you're approaching color. Correct. Yeah. You can mix colors so they're more opaque and you can use your more earthy colors. Like sometimes I'll use a palette of red oxide, yellow ochre and Payne's gray. That's kind of my red, yellow and blue Payne's gray. Golden's Payne's gray is very kind of denimy blue. You use gels, mediums and pastes in your work. What's the trickiest part of learning those materials? Taking the time to notice what they do and the differences. I mean, if you don't think about it, it just looks like a bunch of white stuff. But you have to kind of notice what each one does that's different. Sometimes, if that's particularly what I'm teaching, I'll have people 
take one color and mix it with three different mediums so they can see what it does. And I'll generally have them do that in a sketchbook of some sort. I try to get everybody to keep notes, take good notes, so that if you can't keep it in your head, you can look in your notebook and remember. And those notebooks or journals, they're just good to go through from periodically and say, oh, yeah, I can't remember that. And then might, you might try it. Like I'll print out a photo of, of somebody's painting online that I really liked and I want to try that composition and I'll look at that. So I try to do that with the medium so that they have notes on the mediums in their books because you have to notice what they do that's different than the other ones. Even just paint alone, there's a ton of complexity. But then when you add gels and mediums, it's exponential. So just even having a system about how to learn things, but then also how to remember what you've learned seems like a really big task. It is, especially since most of the people that I'm teaching are retirement ages. So many people have done a whole career and now they're coming back to art or they've been doing one art form all their lives and they've decided they want to try abstraction or something like that. So they're, they're in a change mode and our memories aren't as great as they were at one point in time. So I just think it's really important to take notes and it's really important to build color charts and to build comparisons of the different mediums. And, and that's a lot of, if you go to a golden lecture, that's a lot of what they'll show you in the lecture is their boards and mixtures. The other reason for using mediums in your paint is it just saves you a bunch of money. You can take pyrrole red paint and add 50% medium to it and have it be almost as bright as it was coming straight out of the tube. You've just reduced your paint cost by half if you do that by habit. When I asked Kaz years ago what to do with those mediums, he goes, you know, and he said, I don't know what those things are. He said, but I just put them in a mustard bottle and squirt them on my palate. And that's really what you need to do is just keep putting them in a squirt bottle and squirt them into your paint on the palate and just get in the habit of doing that. You'll stretch your paint. You do build a little bit of transparency and that wouldn't be there otherwise. But you can totally change the viscosity of the paint, but you totally stretch your paint. Are there any examples of specific ways you've learned to work with specific gels and mediums? I don't like to put too much gloss medium into the first layers of my paintings because I often work with thin paint, build up resistance to the next layer of paint if my paint is too thin. So I generally use matte medium. I like a matte finish on a painting. I use gesso for white because it gives everything a chalky look. I love that chalky look. I do in the end varnish the paintings, but I varnish with a satin varnish. So they're not real, real shiny, but they have a little bit of a finish look to them. Other than that, I mean, there's times when I won't use texture just because I don't want the texture. Texture is really hard to deal with in a painting. It's makes it, it's one more thing that can trap you into getting technical about your shapes or whatever, thinking too much. and making little islands of texture that don't work together, et cetera. So it's important if you're building texture to be thinking about design while you're building the texture, even though you're building it really early on in your painting. So, and I've made that mistake of having little islands of texture here and there and then not being able to pull it together in the end. Well, yeah. How do you avoid creating islands of texture? Well, I tell people that the texture needs to reflect the other texture that's on the painting. So if they're together, tell them to think of the painting, Leonardo da Vinci's Hands of God, where the two hands are reaching for each other, but they're not touching each other. That's the way your texture should be. It should be reaching for each other. 
so that there's a shape consistency almost to them. The other thing is if it were a puzzle and they land it together, they would fit together. So they do have to have some relationship to the other. And if they don't, because they take the paint differently, like light molding paste is very absorbent. So it'll make the paint darker. So will pumice gel. So it'll stand out and it'll be just like you have to deal with the shape and it's really hard. So sometimes you end up putting down more light molding paste, which is really frustrating because that means you have to stop painting and wait for it to dry. And you don't want to use a hair dryer on it because it dries the first layer and not the layers underneath it. And it's hard to have the patience to do that when you're in the middle of, you know, you've got this precious painting time that you've been waiting for for five loads of laundry. So you, you don't want to stop, but you have to stop if you're going to add that texture. So it's there's lots of mistakes to be made with texture. In terms of thinking about pacing, like any time, like acrylic, we think of acrylic as drying really fast, but anytime you add texture, that actually, like you said, slows down the process. So how do you use that time? Usually I work on more than one painting at a time, and that keeps me from getting my head into each painting too much and adds to that drying time. Or the other thing will be is I'll just leave it sit and I'll go straighten something up in the studio. I'll take the dog out. I'll, I'll have lunch, something. We do it in class. I do often have them work on two paintings at a time if it's a long enough class. But I also generally time the class so the texture gets applied before lunch. And then by the time we come back from lunch, it's dry. Right. Because I imagine it's real important to let that be totally dry before you move on. Yeah. It needs to be dry enough so it doesn't move. We're going to transition into color. Where in your process do you begin thinking and making decisions about color? From the very beginning. And I encourage students to work analogously. So colors that are next to each other on the color wheel. And then don't veer off until almost the end of the painting. I pretty much work that way. At least the first couple of layers are pretty analogous because they're blended and it all needs to go together and it's kind of becoming the background. And then when I cross the color wheel, I'm creating a lot of contrast and focal points and you just really, really, really need to be aware of design at that point in time. If and when you do cross the color wheel, the side of the color wheel you started with, will that always be the dominant color? And then when you cross the color wheel, that will be the accent colors? Usually. Yeah. Because it's so contrasty, it builds a focal point in there. Because your focal point is always your area of highest contrast. So it can be contrast in color, contrast in texture, contrast in finish like metallic versus flat, contrast with collage versus non-collage. Your eye is always going to go to the area of highest contrast first. Even though you're choosing an analogous color family, how many tubes of paint are you pulling out when you're starting a painting? Usually four. What do you want from those paints? Kind of a blended background, probably. And then I'll start grabbing other colors as I'm moving forward. But generally, those first four colors are the dominant colors in the painting. Unless I really change my mind. Are you using those colors straight out of the tube or are you adjusting them at all? I do some adjustment, particularly on the quinacridones, like quinacridone nickel azo gold, which of course now is discontinued. But I add a teeny bit of raw umber to them because it makes it a little bit more earthy. Otherwise, it becomes very fiery in a painting. When I haven't encouraged students to do that, I'll like watch all these paintings look like they're on fire walking out the door. And I will often subdue some of the brightest colors by adding their complement from the color wheel. And it just takes a little bit just to subdue them down a little bit. And I never really studied color in my life. I've just always has come instinctively. But lately, I've been really studying color for the last probably year or two. 
And so that subduing it with the complement was something that was a surprise to me. I'd been using like raw umber or Payne's gray to subdue colors, which they do, but the complement works better. And sometimes particularly greens seem to need subduing. They tend to like be kind of bright and artificial looking a lot. So I often add a little red to them or sometimes a little yellow and a little red, depending on which green it is. In a painting class in college, it used to be years ago that Liquitex sets all came with Dalo green for the green. So I was painting, it was a portrait, and in the background, I had a lot of Thalo green. And my painting teacher came along and said, you used that Thalo green in the painting, didn't you? And I said, yes. And he said, that just takes over the canvas. So I think of him every time I use Thalo green. That's a color that unless you're really looking for a really colorful painting, you really want to subdue that color a little bit because it, the Thalo does take over. And same with Thalo turquoise takes over a lot. Both great colors, but you got to use them carefully. What are you mixing on? And what is that interaction between like laying out paint, mixing it, and then bringing it on to the painting? I use a couple different things. I like Nicholas Wilton's way of making a palette where he takes a tray and he puts like a dish towel or some paper towels down on it and gets them wet. And then he puts tracing paper over that. And then he puts his paints on that. And if you do that, your paints stay wet a lot longer. So if it's a big painting or a long painting session, I'll do it that way. Otherwise, I use palette paper. For years, I used styrofoam paper plates. And I just realized looking at the waste can after a class one day, I'm putting an awful lot of styrofoam into the environment. So I went out and bought plastic and they were called lunch plates. They had, were divided a little bit and they were plastic. And I gave them to all the students to use for palettes and I was using it. Well, they didn't much like cleaning those out. <laughs> and I got back a lot of dirty palettes at the end of the day. So that system didn't work real well. So I found that the palette paper, I at least feel that I'm not putting so much styrofoam into the environment using that or the tracing paper, either one. What I like about that, though, is that it sort of speaks to that as artists, sometimes you have to try a couple of different things before you figure out the one that works for you. Right, right. And I'm not mixing paint on the palette usually. Well, sometimes I do. I'll put white with it or opposite of the color or something. But I don't need a huge palette. I usually just use like the 9 by 12 palette paper, that size, or the tray that I use is like 11 by 17 or something like that. People will say you can use the palette, I forget the name of it, that has a lid and it's got the sponge in it. And that does work. And if I'm doing realism, I've got one of those palettes and I definitely will use it if I'm doing a realistic painting. And when I first got divorced years ago, I took on a commission that was a door that was a realistic tropical scene. And I knew that I was going to have to use the same colors day after day after day to paint this whole big door. So I, that's when I went and bought that palette. And it worked really well. I was able with, I used a little bit of open medium in my paints and squirted them before I closed off the palette. I also was using for a while ice cube trays with lids on them, but they weren't very good for mixing. But I would store my paints. And then at the end of a session, I would spray them with water. And then I'd put a paper towel down and spray it with water and put the lid on it. And I could keep that paint for five or six days, keep it going. So I wasted a lot less paint when I was using that system. Was that for the fresh paint? Almost like your, your clean paint went in there and then you brought it somewhere else to mix it? Yeah. You said that you don't do a ton of mixing. Does that mean that most of your mixing happens on the surface? 
Yes. I mix on the surface of the paintings because I'm working intuitively. It's I'll mix kind of accidentally and say, oh, I like that. And I'll go on. There's a celadon green color I've come across a couple of times that I really like. So I'll keep, I'll go on mixing that throughout the whole painting. It's kind of, it looks really good with that chalky look. So how do you mix that? How do I mix that? It's sap green, yellow ochre, and gesso. Because you use paints, like straight out of the tube and because you mix on your surface, how do you make sure that the painting has a sense of harmony? Well, that's when you better remember what you did as far as mixing the paint or have a palette that the colors you mix will still be good the next day. But you still have to remember what you did because you might not have mixed enough up or you might not, or you might've mixed it on the canvas and decide you want to repeat it elsewhere and you have to mix it ahead of time. It takes some memorization skills to paint. And that's where having the separate studio really comes in in a good way for me is I'm out of my house and I'm not worried about the next dish or the next meal that needs to be cooked or whatever. Even though I live alone, it's still, those chores are all still hanging over my head. So getting out of here and getting into the separate studio helps me to really focus and to remember what it was I did. How much of your, because you said you bring all the values up at the same time, how does your saturation or chroma levels change as you build a painting? I tend to use really saturated colors. I think in the end is where I change them when I'm lightening the lights and darkening the darks is where the chroma will change. Otherwise, I use really saturated colors. And that's the gallery owners have told me that's what people notice first about my work is the color. And my web designer just said to me, your work is really fun to work with because there's so much color in it. And sometimes it's people criticize me for using the saturated color. And it just goes back to not painting that much realism ever. But that's also why I'm doing color charts these days is to sort of reduce some of that. I love earthy paintings. I just don't do them. I might start with one, but then it comes out saturated. I bought some paints called 12 Shades of Gray. It's cheap paint, but it's pretty good. And I've been using those grays and using those to desaturate some of my colors. And that's been an interesting journey to use more gray. And it's it's nice because it's neutral, mostly. And it changes things and subdues things a little bit. Like your paintings are really colorful, but they're also not like screaming at us. So how do you walk that line between colorful, but not cacophony? I think that goes back to darkening the darks and lightening the lights. If a whole painting is saturated colors, and I certainly have done whole paintings that scream at you. And I won't realize it until after it's been done for a while. It's like, wow, that painting is really loud. But as I put more grays and done a little bit more practice as far as subduing the colors, so when I'm building depth, I'll have to subdue some of the colors and kind of light and that that will include lightening them or maybe lightening isn't even the right word, maybe just desaturating them a little bit at the very end. And also defining that focal point because you have to have that area of contrast and if everything is this big cacophony of colors, then you don't have that focal point. My degree is in graphic design and I work for years as a graphic designer and I'm insistent on a focal point. You can't have a focal point if everything is the same saturation. Where in your process do you decide the focal point? It kind of decides itself. Sometimes I don't decide it till the very end. And sometimes it changes. But I tend to like put my focal point in the top left or lower right hand kind of corner. You know, I use the rule of thirds. So it's a third up and a third in on the right hand corner or the left hand corner. And they tend to be sort of geometric because the painting behind them is organic. So I'll put like a kind of a rough rectangle there. Then sometimes it's even just a mark. 
just got one painting that I did where just in the end, I just put like some X's and B's and looks almost like Roman numerals. Just put those in with a, like a pasta pen afterwards. And that became the focal point. We've been talking about the technical side of things, but I want to shift directions. You mentioned earlier in the conversation about the creative practice. How important is the creative practice as a whole? Creativity feeds creativity. So the more stimulation you give yourself when you actually get to the studio, the faster you're going to get into the zone. I encourage people to keep art journals where you can work in markers or watercolor or something that's you can something you can do on the couch or the recliner while you're watching TV. The keep notes in the same journal just becomes a precious object. I keep to-do lists in mine and paint over them when I'm done with them. But looking at art and experiencing art and having art art friends. I have a play day on Monday where I'm going to go see two art friends and we're just going to play with paint all day. We generally have lunch together. We have dinner together. It's just a full day of painting. And those days and those creative friends are so precious and they help feed that creativity. We exchange ideas. We encourage each other. And I think part of your creative practice needs to be to support other artists. I really strongly believe in like there should be a non-compete clause with painters that we shouldn't compete with each other. We should feed each other. We need to feed each other. You know, I'll share my competition, my teaching competition. I'll share her class on Facebook just so she gets more students because then she'll do it for me and that'll feed my classes. And it's just helping each other and encouraging each other because we're only like 2% of the population or something. We need each other. So I think just working in the journal looking at art, reading about art, listening to podcasts, following somebody on YouTube that you really like, and looking at how different people paint. Maybe there's, you know, sometimes I think I need to tell students, go find another teacher because they've gotten everything out of me that they can get out of me and they need to find another teacher. But that creative practice that just not only doing it, but being with it will help you get into the mode much quicker when you finally get to the easel and will help you know who you are as an artist. I tell people when they look at a piece of art that they see in a museum or a gallery or in a book, and they really like it, take 30 seconds and figure out why do you like it? What has drawn you in? Is it the contrast? Is it the tonality? Is it the color? Is it the marks? What about it is your favorite thing? And then try to incorporate that into your work, that part of that piece of art. So that's part of building that art practice and the creativity, feeding the creativity. If someone came to you and said they wanted to get really good at painting, what advice would you give them? Paint, 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 paint. And be aware of your self-talk and what you're saying to yourself about those paintings. I mean, that's where positive affirmations come from because it's their studies have been done that speaking to yourself in a positive way helps you to build a positive attitude. And I'm a really negative talker to myself. And I have real perfectionistic tendencies that can get in my way. So I talk to myself about paintings. I often say, what would you tell a student at this point in time? Because I have these, I've been teaching for so many years that I have these things that I always say to students to encourage them. And sometimes I have to say that to myself. And I save a lot of the memes off of Facebook. And when I show slides in class, I'll put them up. There's one by Andy Warhol that says something about, don't worry about what other people think. Let them say what they're going to say and go back and do another painting. And then there's another one that says, it's, it's like the 10 steps to painting. 
And it's like, oh, good, I get to paint. Oh, this is fun. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, this is a piece of shit. Oh, I'm shit. Oh, maybe it's okay. Oh, okay, there it goes. This is good. So that actually turned a whole workshop around. I had done a whole day of a workshop, and I could tell that 90% of the people in the workshop were frustrated. They hadn't done abstract painting before, and they just weren't being successful at it. And I started off the next day showing a PowerPoint of my paintings that I started and ended it with that 10 steps of creativity. And it turned them all around and they had good paintings by the end of the day. That self-talk is really, really important. You can learn more about Jacqueline Sullivan, including her workshops at her website, www.jacquelinesullivan.com and on Facebook and Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jacqueline. Thank you, Kelly. And thank you for the people who listened. I appreciate you all. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. If you want more great conversation with Sullivan, join us in the Podcast Art Club for the Extended Cut bonus. In it, you'll explore compositional formats and how to take your mind off what you're doing and why it's so important. To find link to the Podcast Art Club and show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 91. Thank you to everyone over in the Podcast Art Club you make this show possible. Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Pam Lyle, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting!